from Serenity Lane Drug and Alcohol Treatment Centers, a new podcast about rock bottoms, moments of clarity, and life after addiction. This is Voices of Recovery. I just didn't feel like I got the right script in life or I was missing how to be normal. After that, my addiction had just completely took a spiral. I was always searching for the ultimate high, which I believe I found, which was just this side of death because of the progressive nature of this illness. I can't get that back. And either I die or I make it out of it and I will have screwed everything up so bad by that point that I will have to get help and somehow try to get sober. Today is my one year sober anniversary and I am doing a podcast and I'm very happy about it. Welcome to Voices of Recovery. I'm your host, Jackie Danziger. This week, we're going to hear two stories that show that for addicts, there's a lot more to getting sober than simply putting down the substance of choice. And we're going to reconnect with a couple of old friends you might recognize from an earlier episode. My name is Todd. My name is Rollin. Uh, we met in the IOP program at the Roseburg Serenity Lane two years ago, three years ago, three, three years ago. Wow. We featured Todd and Rollin in our holiday episode. They shared a little bit of their story, but mostly they talked about how great life was going a few years into their recovery. Todd's sobriety date is April 21st, 2013, and Rollins is April 15th, 2014. Today, we're going to hear a lot more about what it took for these men to find long-term sobriety. When people imagine getting sober, they often think of a quick trip to rehab. But for many addicts, detoxing is just the beginning. In this episode, we'll follow Todd and Rollin through the stages of recovery beyond the initial 30 days, from checking into the clinic to intensive outpatient and into recovery support. Like so many big changes, getting sober is actually the product of a lot of smaller changes. To hear Todd and Rollin describe it, each new change is a little frightening at first, but ultimately wonderful. And the best part is they didn't have to do it alone. Todd and Rollin are hard guys not to like. They're sincere, they laugh at themselves, and they're both very honest about how they came to be patients at Serenity Lane. I think you learn a lot about these two men just based on their answer to my initial question, asking about their substance of choice. Substance of choice, well, it could have been anything at the time. At that particular time, it was uh, alcohol, opiates, and uh, marijuana. For me, it was uh, huge volumes of vodka straight out of the bottle. Todd's a talker. Rollin, he cuts straight to the point. Their backstories are different too. For Todd, there wasn't one particular factor to blame for his addiction. It was just always a part of who he was. I spent basically my entire adult life addicted to substances, one or another. I would always jump around. And uh, I, my whole life was surrounded by drug and alcohol use to where that's for the most part, that's about all I was. I've heard it said that some of us are born with it, and I kind of count myself amongst those with the idea being that the first time I ever came in contact with either alcohol or drugs, as soon as the substance rolled through my system, I knew what I was about, and I knew what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Rollin, on the other hand, described himself as a normal guy for much of his life, who only became an alcoholic after a series of other problems led to an increasing dependence on alcohol. I have a um, lifelong problem with um, 
It's like a form of being bipolar. I'd always had this kind of problem with um, anxiety and depression. And I had been, unlike Todd, kind of a normal uh, person <laughs> most of my life. But I, I got to this point where I stopped sleeping entirely. Um, not like insomnia, but like literally stopped sleeping at all every day and, and tried lots of prescription medications and they didn't work. And, and typically I'd only slept a little bit my whole life, just a couple hours, and that was good enough for me. But when it went down to zero, then everything, and I had a meltdown. So I started drinking myself to sleep. And then, unfortunately, that worked. And so I, over time, I drank more and more and more to where I was physically addicted and then lost my job. And ultimately, I would, and I tried to quit on my own um, several times, and I would last a few months, and then I would just be super drunk for two or three weeks. Like so many addicts, Todd lived a double life. Well, at least he tried to. He worked hard to hide any sign of his addiction so that he would be free to carry on with his using. Addiction can often lead to this sort of isolation. Forming relationships is a lot harder when you're constantly trying to hide from the world. I was a uh, basically a lifelong mill worker in one of the local mills. I spent 29 years there, was married, three children, a lot of acting. It was a lot of acting. You know, even how I would tend my yard would be to the point where people wouldn't notice or it would be the same all the time. So I could fly under the radar to protect my use. I like to hunt and fish. And even those were excuses to get out and get away and use and not have anybody looking over my shoulder. What did you find worked in trying to be the best actor you could be? Uh, there was no one thing that worked right all the time. You had to be ready to uh, shift gears pretty fast from trying to fly under the radar to making a big splash within the family life and or work community. You had to dance. There was no one thing that could take you through every day. You, you had to be ready to dance to the different facets of uh, acting out an entire day's worth of a lie. When you look back on it now, do you think anybody was on to you at that point or do you think you were able to, to hide it from them? Uh, the people who were the most important in my life knew there was no way to hide that from them. Even the act of trying to hide it, I think, stood out. You know, we have ways of incorporating our family life into a codependent situation to where, you know, they're, they're trying to fix you, they're trying to help you, and we do that to them. And uh, pretty soon they don't know what to do with that anymore and don't want to point the finger. For Rollin, attempting to deal with his alcoholism alone led to a dangerous spiral. Trying to drink less only led to drinking more. I'd had this extended period of about a year where I, was, I knew I was an alcoholic and uh, I was trying very hard to quit, but I didn't know at that point that it's, it's not something you can do on your own. I was trying to do it on my own, so I would last a few weeks or even a few months, and then I would just be incredibly drunk for two or three weeks. And then, because alcoholism is a progressive disease, Rollin found himself at his bottom. I'd had two situations where I'd fallen flat on my face, on a hardwood floor without putting my hands out. And my wife was, and I have little kids, and they were basically done with me. So she called my best friend and said, can you help get him into Serenity Lane? Because we needed uh, like a, a deposit. A person in active addiction becomes a constant seeker. If one is good, more is better. 
For Todd, his addict was insatiable, and his bottom came when a day of drinking soon turned into a scavenger hunt for Vicodin that nearly ended in his death. I spent the day with vodka that particular day, and I was also doing large quantities of methadone on top of that. I uh, drank two-fifths of vodka that day, and I did upwards of 80 methadone that day, and that all seemed to be going fine as far as that goes, with a dependency <laughs> that high. Uh, but then uh, apparently that wasn't enough for me, and I kicked over my house because I knew there was a bottle of Vicodin cough syrup hidden somewhere. I drank that, and I woke up at my parents' place. I was unaware I spent the night in the ER. Uh, apparently I overdosed, and uh, uh, one of my daughters was there. And, uh, apparently I stopped breathing numerous times. They had to bag me several times and was blissfully unaware of any of that. And I uh, woke up at my parents' place, and my first thought was, how am I going to lie my way out of this one? <laughs> I was dead cold busted. <laughs> there, was, there was no way, and it was so frustrating. Uh, uh, my, my dad was there, and uh, he let me know about the toxicology report, and you know it was more of a laundry list. And uh, it, that one instance was probably the most excellent one of my life in the sense that uh, the gig was up and I'd had enough. Uh, it really didn't matter if anybody else had enough. I'd had enough that day, and I started clamoring to get in the doors of Serenity Lane that day. This is where Todd and Rollins' backstories begin to parallel. They had each hit a point of reckoning where the only way forward was to admit that they couldn't do it alone. Addiction is a disease of loneliness. That's why the first step in combating it is to reach out to others and ask for help. That's the whole thing is just having the will to just ask. That was, that's, that's the hurdle you gotta jump. I had to ask myself this when I got into treatment or before I got into treatment uh, because uh, the way I was living my life wasn't working for me anymore. And what possible harm could come from seeking treatment? You know, I, I was scared, I was frightened, and under those conditions, all I ever did was use more over and over and over. It was the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. And they weren't different, they were just more extreme. Uh, the way I was living my life wasn't working for me. It was time to ask for help. For both Todd and Rollin, the need for help and a safe space became more pressing in the days leading up to their check-in at Serenity Lane's residential campus in Coburg, Oregon. I was willing to do it because I was so monumentally miserable and depressed, and I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know which way was up or how, which way to go. Uh, so uh, she drove me over to Serenity Lane and did the, I got all signed up. Um, but there was a delay of a few days, and I continued to drink. And then even got a DUI on my last night as I was waiting to go in the next morning. So pretty depressing. There was a couple days lull before I could actually get in for an assessment. And uh, I showed up quivering, and uh, I'm pretty sure crying, and I don't remember what else, and just practically demanding that I get into residential treatment because I needed to be in a safe place. I remember the drive a little bit because I was going into the DTs, and I remember walking in the door. That's about it. Both men arrived suffering from the emotional and physical symptoms of withdrawal. Their first stop, 
the special inpatient care unit where they would undergo detox before starting their 28-day stay in residential. It was pretty obvious, I believe, that uh, I was a pretty good candidate, and I was happy to find <laughs> that they agreed with me, and uh, it was shortly thereafter I did go to residential for a month. I, I was terrified. I, I, was, I was frightened. I could not stop. Uh, I, I wanted to stop, and that's part of what was frightening, is I could not stop. Uh, that's all I thought about. Well, once I got into residential treatment in the detox unit, they started the process of allowing me to do that by medically detoxing me off of it. They put me on Depakote and Librium, uh, and I'm told I just mumbled and shuffled for five days. They got me started on their own prescriptions, and then they had control over how to back me off of that. Detoxing was the very beginning of it. Do you have any memory of that physical experience? Unfortunately, I do, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, it was an incredibly difficult time. To say that doesn't give it justice. Uh, and on the other hand, I also wonder how much of those memories actually were. What do you mean? Well, I, w I was so sick uh, and my perceptions of everything. I mean, I didn't know how to live. All I could do was, was breathe, and I couldn't do that very well. So I questioned whether my memories were like I think they are. About the sixth or seventh day, I remember being super happy because it was, I felt it was miraculous that I was alive. Um, so I, then I was yelling and saying inappropriate things and cussing, and, and people were on me about needing to calm down because I was so happy that it was just miraculous. There was a little feeling of hope, uh, and I'd never really felt that. As a matter of fact, I'd never felt that before at all when it came to that sort of thing. You know, I was a prisoner, and uh, there was a little bit of hope that maybe I didn't have to be a prisoner anymore. The medical staff there worked with me extensively on the sleep thing, and, and they, of all people, figured out a combination of medications by the time I left inpatient, I got medication that, that has worked for four years now. Oh, that must be like a huge relief. It is, yes, the biggest. This is how Todd responded when I asked him how soon after checking into the hospital unit that he started to think with a clear head again. I don't believe that happened within the 30 days I was there. I was a mess. I mean, uh, you're only there for 30 days, so they only have so much time to step you down off of stuff. I had been taking lethal doses of substances for most of my life, so the step-down process was horrible and awful and, uh, and necessary. And, uh, you know, I was still detoxing the whole time I was there. Uh, did I learn an awful lot of things there? I, I sure did. I had a lot of wonderful experiences there. It was just what I needed. I needed to be somewhere safe, and I needed to be told where to go and what to bring and when to get back and how to present myself and what's okay as far as my actions. I, I needed to be told how to start living my life right then. After the patient is safely detoxed, they transition to the residential program. Residential treatment provides a safe space to recover combined with structure, lots of therapy, therapeutic activities, but for many patients, one of the best parts of the experience is what they learn from each other. I can say one of, one of the best things that I can recall as far as giving hope is the interactions with the other patient. Uh, I was able to see all kinds of victories and failures and uh, attempts to move forward that were stalled and and yet they still burst out the other side of it moving forward, and that gave me so much hope. I don't believe 
that I'd be here today if it was just myself and a counselor sitting in a room. I needed the interaction with the other patients. I feel the same way. I was kind of able to um, latch on to certain individuals that I thought were going at it with the tenacity they had gone at their addiction with. And that camaraderie is something that saves you for all the hours in the day when you're not at Serenity Lane. As a person sobers up, it may become clear that they have some additional issues like depression, anxiety, and anger. These are called co-occurring disorders. Patients at Serenity Lane are assigned to groups such as anger management, coping with trauma, or body image and nutrition. It is in these groups where patients learn to unpack, discuss, and deal with some of these emotions and behaviors in a healthy way. Managed by counselors and highly structured, these groups are where a lot of the early recovery work begins. As Todd and Rollin can attest, it's not exactly the easiest part of the process. From some of the people I've talked to so far, they told me that sometimes the group can be sort of hard on each other and really holding each other accountable. Did you either experience that or participate in that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, from, from, day, from day one, uh, your defects of character, they just blare out in group. And, uh, you know, uh, generally, I, I can only speak for myself, but that was the first time I ever put myself in a position where I was willing to even consider listening to others' description of my behavior. So to be held accountable by others, that was really a first for me. Any, any particular examples? Well, I was the classic anger junkie. So, uh, and uh, well, anger junkie on one hand, and on the other hand, I was a sea of ne negativity to where if there was somebody bubbly and having a good day, I wanted to tear them down because it made me feel better kind of defect of character. How, how did that go over with the group? Uh, I'm happy to report they nailed me every time. That never, never washed. It never washed. At first, that must have been very frustrating. Did that, did that stop being frustrating within those 30 days, or was it not until later that you saw that as a good thing? Uh, it, even that would come in waves. It, the, the neat thing about it is it was so constant, that feedback. It, it didn't matter if it was okay with me or not okay with me that day. It was going to happen just like the tides are going to move. Mm -hmm and uh, it became a staple, something solid in my life. A big part of what makes these groups effective is that for the first time in a long time, the addict can't hide because they're speaking to an audience of their peers. Nobody can get through to an addict like another addict. This makes all the difference when you're talking about getting sober. It can also lead to breakthroughs in other areas. Well, the, the sleep thing, obviously, they were all over. And the other thing they... Um got me on, I remember this very specifically, was I had um, unresolved grief issues. My mom died when I was a little kid, um, and I wasn't allowed to deal with it. Um, and so they wanted me to get extra counseling when I got back home, which I did, and that was very beneficial. Was that the first time that you had really been able to talk about your mom? I think it, I think it was. I was kind of trained when I was a kid, and it happened, my dad just told me that she died, and then we never talked about it again. That was it. So um, I just had this huge bundle of feelings and issues that I'd never dealt with. That was, that was really been ultimately super beneficial that they were on me about that. And do you think that you would have sought out that extra counseling afterwards had you not gone to Serenity Lane? 
If it wasn't for Serenity Lane, I, I wouldn't have done that and I wouldn't be where I am now, which is pretty darn happy. After 30 days, the fog is just lifting and returning to life is a tough test of new sobriety. Recognizing this, Serenity Lane recommends patients complete a follow-up 10-week intensive outpatient program, or IOP for short. This is where Todd and Raleigh met each other. I asked them to describe the program. Uh, intensive outpatient, it follows for some who have a residential stay, which is roughly 30 days. That's when you really start working on your life issues once you hit the intensive outpatient program. It's uh, three times a week, about three hour group sessions. There are uh, outside meetings mixed in with it as well. Yeah, it's, it's about dealing with an awful lot of defects of character and denial issues and uh, different things of that nature. The one thing that it helped, I think, everyone with is you, you could kind of come in and then go out. And you had to come right back in and go out. So you get this like security blanket that's there for you every you know day or so. Intensive outpatient for me, uh, it, it, it appeared to be if you've been chosen to go to residential, you go there, you detox, you learn as much as you can, and then you come out and outpatient starts teaching me how to live life, how to live life and treat you well and deal with my feelings in the process, which I had no idea were so huge until I got there. I had an awful lot of feelings and anxiety, uh, crippling anxiety. Tell, tell me just what, what that was like, the anxiety specifically. Um, it's harder to describe what the feeling is like beyond the fact that you're just coiled like a spring and uh, you it's either it's a it led to a fight-or-flight syndrome I would either lash out or shut up one of the two in addition to providing a safety net resources and structure IOP also provides a vital opportunity to make new friends the act of working together sharing feelings and supporting each other through recovery is known as fellowshipping, and it's recognized as one of the pillars of long-term sobriety. I remember Todd, I was already in, I started a little bit before he did, and I had a, a cancer situation, which, which was pretty troubling, and my counselor said, would you like to do a few more weeks? Because I was, you know, it was a obviously a bad time to get cancer, and when you're in the middle of treatment. So I said, yeah, and Luckily for me, Todd showed up in those first few weeks, and I remember him being wound up extremely tight and talking about his crippling anxiety, which was exactly where I had been a few weeks earlier. I spent some energy listening to him, and, and uh, ultimately we became very good friends because we have a lot in common. I remember the first day in group that I got there and I mentioned those words, crippling anxiety, and out of everybody's head in the room, Rollins' head snapped up. And, and I knew there was somebody, a, a kindred spirit, that we were both equally miserable, <laughs> weren't we? <laughs> yeah. It may have been shared misery that brought them together, but it was through that misery that Todd and Rollin built camaraderie. Now they each had an ally which they would need as they prepared for the next stage of their treatment. The last phase of Serenity Lane's treatment plan is called recovery support. It's free and available for up to two years after a patient has completed their intensive outpatient programming. People in recovery joke that the two things they hate most are change and the way things are. Change is uncomfortable and it can be scary. 
Serenity Lane's treatment plan is designed to transition patients through the big changes that happen in the process of getting clean and sober. Well, transitioning out of outpatient, just like transitioning out of residential, was a little frightening because, uh, you know, out of residential, you know, it's not as safe. That becomes, that became my safe place. And uh, outpatient, uh, that was also my safe place because there was enough of it, three times a week, three hours each time, uh, down to uh, recovery support, which was an hour and a half once a week. You know, now you're practically cut loose. You know, the, the possibilities are endless. I asked if cut loose meant a complete lack of structure. But Todd told me recovery support offers weekly sessions with a counselor to help cope with the inevitable ups and downs of early recovery. He noticed these counselors could take a different approach than he experienced in IOP. It appears as though as a counselor for recovery support, you're there to more gently guide people towards the path that we've already been taught is the right one for us and we've already chosen as our path. And at that point, we still tend to want to stray. And uh, it's, it's more of a gentle nudge rather than the intensive outpatient is more of a headlock sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> For Rollin, recovery support offered a new level of independence. He could pick and choose from different philosophies to build the foundation of his sobriety. Well, the thing that I liked about recovery support that, it, that was painful initially was once you get into recovery support, you're driving the car. That's the first point where you are actually driving the car. And you, if you wanted to, could drink or do whatever. You really, at that point, make up your own program, what works for you. And it doesn't all come from Serenity Lane. You know, we all have different aspects we pick up in different places. Some of us have a very AA-based program, or some have a very treatment-based program. And some people pick and choose. You know, after you've been doing it a while, you've talked to lots of other people and read lots of other books. So that's the exciting thing about recovery support is you can really develop your own plan and uh, throw away all the uh, seemingly hundreds of suggestions that don't help you. This is where patients truly begin to practice what they've learned and turn new behaviors into lifelong habits. They also have the opportunity to see these tools in action with people living in long-term recovery. It was frightening, and yet each time... You know, when I transitioned from residential to outpatient was wonderful in more ways than not. And transitioning from outpatient to recovery support, no, that was pretty neat. That was pretty neat. I got to look at people with some pretty serious time at, at that point, in my opinion. And uh, I got to learn an awful lot from them. And in outpatient, you're dealing with people who have roughly the same amount of time as you have. In recovery support, that was the first time I was able to really rub elbows with folks with a year. My goodness, <laughs> two years, holy cow. So uh, that was pretty great. It's been said that the best way to break a bad habit is to replace it with a new one. Long-term recovery is largely based on the building of new habits and practicing new ways of thinking and behaving until they become part of daily living. This includes relearning how to do life, wake up sober, eat breakfast sober, go to work sober, and so on. It can feel weird at first. Once I went back to work after being in residential, that was, a, that was probably my biggest eye-opener of how long I'd been at it how I didn't know how to do anything in life. 
Even leaving for work that morning, my keys didn't feel the same in my hand. The steering wheel in my vehicle, I had to reach farther. The shifter knob was big. It was like, like an eight ball or something. <laughs> Uh, uh, even the steps I took across the same areas were, were totally different. The people looked at me funny and the tools I'd used forever didn't have the same heft in my hands. Uh, physically and emotionally, I was starting that day. What worked in terms of being able to get through that day? Well, that's where the program really came in. It was about treating others well, which isn't, wasn't something I did so much at work no matter what my feelings were, and they were enormous. They were just practically overpowering. And the interesting part was to be feeling feelings that intense and still practicing the program and hearing kind words and helpful words come out of my mouth lives like I was sitting next to somebody. I have started my life completely over in every single aspect I can think of, except I still like to fish. Uh, what, what changes have you made in your life? Uh, you, wow. na you name it, my residents, the people I'm close with, my friends, my job, uh, what I drive, what I wear, not to mention if I'm working a spirituality-based program, I get to have these little moments where I get to step outside, go into my vehicle to go to the store, to go to work. It's a mundane thing. Sometimes I'll do it and I won't even notice and I'm halfway to the store and there's other times on my way to my vehicle I get to look around and, and just take a look at things. Those are little little snippets of spirituality I, I, get to, I get to drink in now thanks to this program. In many cases, a person in early recovery must face the damage they've done and begin the work of repairing relationships and making amends. In Rollins' case, the first relationship he had to look at was the one with his wife. I asked him to describe his marriage during his recovery process. It was troubled. I was, um, I would, I was trying to do my best four periods of time, and then I um, would have, I think I had three um, super bad uh, relapses before I was drunk for a few weeks. So my wife was, um, didn't want to leave me, but she was considering it. You know, the inpatient treatment was really the only answer for me. She, as soon as it began to take, she was super supportive and behind me uh, 100% and helped me uh, all along the way. And so our relationship is, I'm very grateful that this whole thing happened because our relationship is far better now than it had been. Can you think of any specific differences between your relationship with her now versus then? Versus the drinking period? Well, it's kind of everything, you know, we, we get up in the morning and say, I love you. Where we, you know, before she would just go to work and not say a word and I would, um, as soon as possible, go to the liquor store. I think part of the difference in, you know, Todd's situation is probably more normal, but in my situation, my wife knew me before the drunk period. So she knew I could be a good human. So she stuck it out, that doesn't usually happen. For a year or more, basically all I did all day was some kind of a recovery thing. I wasn't working, uh, and, and we didn't have any money, and she supported me anyway. Rollin and his wife have two children. They were still pretty young when Rollin was drinking, so his focus today is on making up for lost time. My drunk period was off and on between 2010 and through 2012. A different, you know, the first part was just kind of slowly drinking more and more each night, and that part 
we still got along well because I was more or less happy. Then all of 2011 was horrible and 2012 was the relapse. So that is time lost that I'll um, never be able to make up. But I try very hard to be the best father I can now. Rollin is really involved with his kids' daily life now. He has lunch and recess with them once a week, and he gets them ready every morning for school. I asked him what they remember from the years when he was drinking. My daughter remembers it a little bit. My son periodically talks about some of my self-induced injuries, and they both remember being very sad when I was an inpatient because they could only see me like once a week, and my wife would bring them up to see me, and they, and they didn't want to leave and they would be crying, kind of holding on to me. So they remember that. But they don't really, strangely enough, remember a lot of my um, isolationist drunkness. <laughs> uh, so they're, they're not really damaged by the whole thing, even though I feel like they should be. Like Todd, Rollin says pretty much everything in his life has changed since getting sober. Rollin worked since he was 10 years old, but he was unemployed for two years while he was drinking. Now he has a job he enjoys in a workplace he values. He told me a big part of his sobriety is communicating as much as possible with the people in his core support network. I'm lucky I had, I kept some friends since childhood that stuck with me and I still have them. And then I have a super fantastic sister that's just like a saint. So I have a kind of a, a core group that I call or text every day. So my life is pretty, um, it's kind of boring in a way, if you look at it from the outside. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm kind of, you know, we talk about it in recovery like, when they explained it to us in uh, IOP that it's kind of like an oscilloscope where it's you're up and you're down and it's horrible and, and it'll kind of even out. And mine is sort of evened out where I'm kind of pulling a six out of 10 every day. And I'm okay with that. When you look at life in addiction versus life in recovery, the improvements are pretty clear. Still, it takes a lot of work to get and stay sober. And not all of that work is easy or fun. This is where gratitude comes in. People in recovery love to talk about gratitude. For Todd, gratitude is about appreciating the past while living in the present, knowing that he is right where he's supposed to be. I had to do everything I've done in my life prior to this to get to this point. I'm sincerely lucky to be an addict alcoholic in recovery because how can anybody know what it feels like to come this high after being that low? Few others get to do that. I, today, right this minute, I get to. I asked him how he acts on that new sense of gratitude. Generally, the opportunity to act on that gratitude presents itself in front of you. I can make it happen. I can force the issue and just be extra nice at the store or something like that, which is also fun. But uh, more often than not, I find God puts the instance in front of me and uh, I get to act on that based on his guidance. The friendships formed in recovery are among the most valuable gifts of sobriety. There's a common experience and a language spoken between people who have gotten to that jumping off point and found hope. These friendships are built on honesty, open-mindedness, and a willingness to say yes when asked for help. 
As Todd and Rollin will tell you, these friendships are very different than those forged in addiction. There's really no comparison. Uh, you know, there were some real friendships in, in use, I believe. My judgment was mighty clouded in a whole bunch of different ways. Uh, in recovery, they're real friendships based on a common problem, and I've never had that before. No matter what's going on, I know this guy. I know Rollins sitting here. He knows me. He knows I'd do anything for him, and vice versa. I think the, the thing with the comparison between those two categories is in use, your friendship is kind of about the use. When you get to the level we're at, it's more about your soul. It's infinitely deeper relationship. Todd and Rollin came to treatment by different paths, but once their paths crossed, they did the best thing they could for their recovery. They stuck together. Addiction is lonely. When it comes to staying sober, there is safety in numbers. Whether it's asking for help or sharing in the good times or just bringing a wingman to a podcast interview, the road to recovery is best traveled with friends. Todd, why, why did you know it was a good idea to ask Rollin to, to do this with you? Oh, it was a no-brainer. <laughs> it was a no-brainer. Uh, uh, there were a number of us that uh, met in IOP, and, uh, well, I knew Rollins' schedule. And somewhere along the line, I, it has been shown to me that I'm pretty good at leaning on people to get stuff like this. <laughs> and, uh, and But I had a feeling I was going to get a yes without having to really lean on him. And uh, I, I just had a feeling. He was the first one I called, and I got a tentative yes right off the bat, and that just made me feel great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Voices of Recovery. We'll be back in a few weeks with more stories of rock bottoms, moments of clarity, and life after addiction. All episodes are available at SoundCloud and on iTunes. Follow our Facebook page for photos and sneak previews of upcoming episodes. Rate us and write us a review on iTunes to help let people know about the show. Voices of Recovery was created by Monique and Jackie Danziger and produced by Serenity Lane Drug and Alcohol Treatment Centers in Oregon and Washington. This episode was recorded and edited by me, Jackie Danziger. Writing and production assistance by Monique Danziger. The music featured in this episode was composed by Sammy Gallo. Our production coordinator is James Tyson. Thank you to Tony at the Roseburg Serenity Lane campus for introducing us to Todd and Rollin and to everyone at Serenity Lane who helps make this show possible. 